Hi all, good morning and welcome back to another edition of Hans's Protocol Builders podcast. Uh, as always, we hope this podcast to give founders, builders and operators in Web3 actionable tips on building and growing dApps and protocols from the most experienced people in the space. Uh, today, we're fortunate enough to have Brennan Lamy, uh, the founder of one of our recent portfolio companies, QuillDB. Quill is building a decentralized SQL database solution on our weave. Uh, how are you going, Brennan? I'm doing well. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm going really well. Thank you. Um, now, now, Brennan, for those who don't entirely understand uh, the how or the why of decentralized databases, um, would you be able to give us a quick rundown of the problem that you're solving and a bit about what Quill's solution looks like? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the problem that we're solving is like a uh, complex data, you know, complex data structures, complex data storage, or even um, if you want to abstract even further, like complex state management for, you know, blockchain-based applications. And so, you know, for us, it started with us building a social, um, like a like a decentralized social network. That's what I had started building on top of Arweave. And, uh, you know, pretty critical to that being able to function uh, was, you know, building a database. Arweave only operates as a file system. And so, um, just to sort of like draw the distinction between like file systems and databases. So a file system, you can sort of think of like a folder in your computer where, you know, you can, you know, make a folder, you can put a ton of documents in there, make another folder, put more documents in there, but you can't really query it. You know, you couldn't go and say, give me the file that has the most likes or that, you know, was posted by this person. Um, and so you have very limited functionality for managing your data, but then a SQL database, it stores things in tables. Um, you can think about sort of like an Excel spreadsheet. There's rows, there's columns, and you can query by what's contained within those cells. And so, you know, in web two, you know, uh, file systems, they're used for things like, you know, image storage, uh, user config, um, PDFs, things like that. While, you know, databases, they're used for like smaller, more granular pieces of data um, that you can, you know, like that you need to be able to query very, very rapidly. And so for us building a decentralized social network, we started by building a decentralized database and then ended up just having that be our product because we found so many other projects need it. And so, yeah, from like a sort of high level, that's sort of the difference between like, you know, a database versus like a file system and why we're building what we're building, um, because it gives you a much better level of uh, control over your data and you can build much more uh, complex applications with it. Out of, out of curiosity, what, what was it that sort of dragged you towards decentralized social and I guess sort of web three in, in the first place? Yeah. Um, it was, it was a mix of things. Uh, one of them was boredom. Um, I had a job that I just like, um, wasn't a huge like fan of, uh, and just didn't really interest me. And so I, I'd started developing not in web three. Um, I started developing like an entirely different application, but then, um, I had read, or I guess, um, my, my brother, he had sent me a tweet thread by Naval. I don't know if you know, it's Naval Ravikant. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he, uh, he sent me a tweet thread about Naval and it was like sort of talking about, uh, crypto and I thought it was like really, really interesting. And so literally on my lunch break one day at my job, I went, I bought a book on solidity and I started playing around with solidity and I thought it was really cool. And what encouraged me to start building specifically a social, uh, platform was, uh, one of my friends, um, you know, back from college, he, uh, so he came to the U S from China, um, sort of like, you know, long story short, uh, his, his, you know, he had a family member working in the government you know, mess, uh, mess around with some wrong people. And so he was the only one from his family that escaped, or actually, I think like you know, a couple months ago, the rest of his family just got to the U S but he had been here for like seven or eight years, um, you know, completely on his own. And so it was just sort of like the, uh, he, he, he and I had talked a lot about the, like, uh, like oppression and censorship that occurred in, in China or in just like, you know, that we don't really see as much in non-Western countries. And I think that was sort of like, 
what got me started with thinking about, you know, like immutable data and wanting, um, you know, some sort of like immutable communication platform. Yeah. One, one thing that's, that's really fascinated me about that part of the story was just sort of picking up a book on solidity and then going into building a protocol, I assume not that much later. I guess sort of one thing that we come across when we speak to a lot of founders is that obviously in say like any crypto project or Web3 project, there's a vast variety of disciplines that you need to get up to speed on quickly to create like a, like, I guess a, a full, a full spanning network. How, how do you sort of go about filling up those knowledge gaps and sort of learning the things you need to learning the unknown unknowns as it were, um, on, on your way to sort of building out Quill? Uh, I mean, short answer, Google, um, <laughs> Google and YouTube were very, very helpful. Um, but like sort of a long answer, uh, and this, you know, not everyone in web three, uh, has this opportunity. So I was very, very fortunate, but you know, when I came into web three, I started out with a very strong network and that's because of the Arweave community, you know, Sam was there to really fill in my gaps, both like, uh, Sam, he's the founder of Arweave, but, uh, sort of filled it in technically, but then also sort of like the basic things I need to begin, you know, like, uh, having some sort of like a, like, you know, having, having a company and, you know, running it and trying to push out a protocol. Um, and so that was, you know, having a, like a network, um, of people who were like there to really help build, you know, are we even the you know, broader, are we community that was really, really helpful for me to like fill in my knowledge gaps. Um, I would probably attribute most of it to that. Was, was there ever an alternative to building on our wave or sort of what, what was it that dragged you over that way? Yeah, I found Arweave completely by accident. So um, I got involved with Arweave before it became what we now, you know, like know as Arweave. Arweave's huge now. Um, but when I sort of like like uh, found Arweave, it was like, uh, it, it, you know, it was pretty small. Like I think at the time, uh, Sam, he had like like 1,500 or like 2,000 followers on Twitter, which he's, you know, pretty big now. So it was like, um, I found it because, so when I started building like this uh, messaging application, I like started very you know, well, at first I was just kind of building it for fun, but I started by just storing all of the data on Ethereum. Now that's like wicked expensive, right? And so I started looking for alternative storage solutions. Uh, and I was looking at Filecoin, I was looking at uh, Sia, I was looking at StoreJ. And, you know, looking at all of these, what I didn't like was that you had to perpetually pay for the cost of storage as opposed to Ethereum. And so I was like jumping around them and I, I was like, all right, you know, I'll figure out some other alternatives. And I started going through the different comparisons of Filecoin, Sia, and StoreJ. And it was in a Medium post where I was reading a comparison between the three, where at the end it gave a special acknowledgement to Arweave. And I was like, oh man, I don't have to pay for perpetual storage on this other thing they gave a shout out to. Like, let's see if I can, you know, build this on there instead. Um, two days later, I DM'd Sam on Twitter and I was just like, kind of told him about like what I was trying to do. And he was like, yeah, I think this would be like, I think this would be great. And that was just sort of how I found Arweave. It was like pretty accidental. Yeah, that's nice to hear. Do you remember, so was that, was that storage for Ecclesia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The social is called Ecclesia. Um, and yeah, that's what it was for. And then do you, do you, so do you reckon it would be feasible to have run decentralized SQL away from Arweave or if not sort of, what were the benefits of using Arweave for what you're doing now with Quill? Yeah. So, I mean, decentralized SQL, I guess it doesn't, it does and doesn't like, you know, necessitate something like Arweave um, because you know, database data a lot of the time is mutable. Um, so, you know, you have updates, you have deletes. Um, and so in that, like, are we've, it's not that it's a bad solution, um, but it just like, you know, are we being an immutable data storage intuitively? Like, you know, if you're thinking, oh, I need to delete data or I need to update data, you think I probably can't do that on Arweave. And that's actually one of the most common uh, like questions 
we get asked by like potential investors or like people interested in using quills, like, you know, it's on our weave. So I'm assuming I can't, uh, you know, delete or update data. And that actually is not true. And this is where our weave gets really, really valuable in that quill and like the quill network itself is a blockchain. And so it's very important for us to go back through and verify all of the changes that have occurred in that blockchain, whether that's creating data or deleting data from this active database. Um, and so where our weave becomes really, really valuable for a database like this is that um, you know, let's say you have some application running on a database um, for a decentralized community. And at one point that decentralized community, they either have a disagreement or there's a security breach or something like that. You can now go back on our weave, choose a certain point in time and fork your data at that point. And if data got deleted after that, you will still have that in your database. Well, if I was building this on, you know, Filecoin or something, uh, you would not be able to go back and fork your data at that point in time. And so in this way, you know, even though like, permanent immutable data storage isn't like, you know, quote unquote, necessary for a database, for a decentralized database and for, you know, 95, 90, you know, 7% of the applications that would want to use it, it's very important to have that functionality. And so in that way, our weave is pretty critical. Why, why is it that sort of decentralizing these databases provides an advantage to most clients over using a centralized database? Um, do you, do you have yeah. a brief explanation for that? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm very glad you asked that. So um, it's something that we sort of internally call permissionless data rights. Uh, and so I guess for me to explain this, it's important for me to explain, you know, Ethereum and the breakthroughs that Ethereum made. You know, uh, Ethereum, you're able to define your own ledger. You could define the different rules for your ledger. You could define the functions for how people can interact with it that have, you know, different inputs, and then you deploy it. And now people can just permissionlessly plug in and write to that ledger. And so you know, in that Ethereum made it so you can choose your ledger, you can choose the rules for the game and deploy it, and now anybody can play the game. And so that's the same thing that we're doing with databases. Right now, we're sort of calling them smart DBs. I think we're probably going to change that name. Just it's too similar to you know like smart contracts. Um, but like literally, what we're building is you can define you know your SQL table. Um, you can you know define the different rules, the different ways in which people are able to write to it. Or, uh, traditionally, they're called parameterized queries in SQL. Um, but you can define those, you can define like, you know, certain KPIs, like, you know, these wallets can, if they, you know, maybe if you own this NFT, you can write to this. If you don't own this NFT, you can't, um, and you can define the different rules for how people can interact with this table and then deploy it. And so in this, the value of a decentralized database is that you have tables as a protocol where now, instead of them, you know, uh, functioning and, you know, having to be run and, you know, maintained by companies. Someone can just set the rules for the game and deploy it. And now anybody can plug into that game and use it in their own application. And even if the people who originally created that game, you know, entirely just, you know, go off the face of the earth, that game will still continue functioning as previously defined, just like a smart contract. Yeah, I think that was, that was a really nice, concise explanation um, that is probably, probably a lot better than what I give to other people when describing Quill. Um, Again, another one of the themes that I think Quill really capitalizes on is that theme of data composability. Um, sorry, sorry for asking for all the brief explanations, but do you have one for that as well? Yeah, yeah. And so I think data composability can be, you know, broken down into sort of like two, um, well, if we broken down into more, but for the sake of this, I'll sort of break data composability down into like two segments, writing data and reading data. Um, and so writing data, that's sort of exact, like, you know, it's exactly what I just, uh, you know, described with permissionless data rights. You can, you know, you can define the rules for the game and now anybody can write to this database. Um, and so in that you have composable data in that I can deploy, actually one of the most common uh, use cases we're seeing this for right now is social graphs. You know, I can make a very basic social graph um, where like, 
you know, I'm defining, you know, fo follower relationships in a table and I can deploy that. And so now you could have, you know, five different uh, decentralized socials all plugging into the social graph. And, you know, at first it's like, you know, okay, like that's like a sort of like an edge case. But when you look into like, you know, web two, um, you know, the example I use for this is actually, uh, you know, something like Reddit. Um, Instagram and Spotify. And so these are all like different quote unquote social applications where you have follower relationships, but these all do fundamentally different things, you know, text and, you know, threads, which is Reddit images, which is Instagram and then music, which is Spotify. And in web three, they would all be able to permissionlessly plug into this one follower table. And they all just play by the rules of that, you know, follower table. Um, and so in this way, they don't have to bootstrap their own networks. Um, but you know, follower table, it's a very basic example, but you can do this for really like, like very, very complex uh, data structures. And so data composability for writing data, it's anybody can plug in and, you know, use, um, and not use, be able to write to this. And then on the reading data side, this isn't something that is particularly enabled by Web3, but Web3 changes the risk calculation. And so with reading data, you can just read any data from a database, use it in your own application. Um, you know, right now you don't have to pay to access that data. We are sort of looking at building in like different types of threshold decryption and things like that. So you do, um, but that is still, you know, not a feature we've implemented. Um, but so this is something that uh, actually was really uh, popularized by Twitter and, you know, the Twitter Firehose API. Um, so this is back in like 2011. Uh, Twitter, they had an API where you could access all of the Twitter data and pull it in your application. And literally entire companies were built on accessing this Twitter API. And in 2011, they shut off that Twitter API because it was better for Twitter as a business to keep that data internal and not allow people to use it. And, you know, entire companies went under because of this. And so with data composability on the read side of things, while it's not well, like, you know, you can set up a database in Web2 and just allow other people to access it, it fundamentally changes the risk calculation because you have an absolute guarantee that no one is going to pull the plug from you as, you know, Twitter did in 2011. And so, yeah, when we talk about composability, there's really like two ways we can break it down. And those are like the, yeah, happy, happy to go deeper on like either of those. Um, but that's generally how we think about it internally. Yeah, because I, I guess that's quite a, quite like the Firehose API issue brings up, I guess what might be quite a tough philosophical question is that obviously from the, the long tail of client sides, having that composability is a massive advantage because you can pull from all these other services. Um, but you say if, you, if you're the first mover and you've built up this sort of proprietary data source, is there any advantage or how do you communicate the advantage of making that data sort of more open access or composable on top of? Yeah. So it really, um, it entirely depends on the actual, like, uh, like on the application, I would say mask network, for example, that's, you know, one of the projects we're working with, they're building a decentralized social graph. But for them, their value is not in the social graph, it's in the other services Mask, um, you know, offers their users. And so for them, them being able to just like really easily port around different social graphs and use those, it's valuable to them because it decreases user friction. But now let's say if you were working with some sort of like proprietary data, you might not want to use Quill. You would, you know, you probably don't want to be using like private data, you know, in blockchains in general, just you're not going to beat the security of a centralized database. And so for us, you know, there are some applications where you know, they do need to keep data private and, you know, that's great. I would probably, you know, not recommend using blockchain for that. What we're really trying to target are the people who really benefit from that decreased uh, user friction by data composability. Um, so yeah, we, yeah, anyway, sort of going in circles here. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it does. I, I think, I think you've communicated that really well again. Um, I was, yeah. So then the, ne the next point was sort of 
you, you brought up mass net worth and you've, you've mentioned the social graph a couple of times. Is that sort of a decent representation of what the, what you aim for the client base to be made up of at the moment or sort of who, who else do you find is advantaging most from Quill's services? Yeah. So we, we've identified decentralized social as sort of like a vertical that we want to dominate. Um, you know, part of it is because our weave is becoming a place for decentralized social. Um, and so, you know, we, we definitely have a lot of advantages with, you know, trying to capture that and really dominate that vertical. We're also, um, <clears throat> looking at decentralized science. Now, decentralized science as like a broader concept is, you know, a bit more in its infancy than decentralized social. Um, but it is something that we are also like very keen on trying to dominate. Um, but then for other use cases right now, we've seen like quite a few, uh, applications that, uh, for, for almost like a, for reasons that we did not expect are finding value in Quill. And so there are also like a couple of applications that, you know, right now we can't really fit into a, uh, into a, into a vertical. Um, so an, an example that you would probably be familiar with is Kive, you know, working, we're working with a Kive team to help serve their data back to end users. So people can read from Kive data. Um, another one that like we're working really closely with, they're called Space and Time. Um, they're a, like a newer project, um, but they, um, they have like a, you know, really stellar team. Um, like both their founders came from Teradata, which is like a, you know, public, you know, web two data company. Um, but so, uh, we're working with them to help, uh, provide like a storage layer for their decentralized data warehouse. And so, you know, for something like that, we can't really fit that into the niche of like, you know, decentralized social or, you know, decentralized science for them. It's really just providing like a complex storage solution for their data. And so, yeah, while I would probably identify decentralized social as the one vertical that we are actively trying to dominate, there are some other use cases that we've seen, um, you know, pop up. Have you, have you found that say, cause of just how common and usable SQL is that Quill could feasibly be a bridge for say like old school web two databases to bring it across to web three, or is the target mainly just these sort of web three native companies, like you mentioned, decentralized social and decentralized science. Yeah. So it's, it's funny. We actually have seen a lot of that, um, where, uh, I guess there's really two examples I can probably point to so far of people that have come to us because they want to include some element of decentralization, whether it's, you know, the permissionless access, the security guarantees, or even just like the ethos. Um, <clears throat> we've had at this point, two development teams come to us and say that they're really interested in, you know, using our solution and work to integrate our solution. Uh, because it was SQL based and it wasn't using, you know, smart contracts and, you know, like different APIs that their developers had never used. And so uh, in that way, you know, we have seen, um, yeah, I, I, we have seen broader adoption because it is SQL based and, you know, it's very, very native to a lot of Web2 developers. Like even our SDK, we try to mimic it as close as possible to a regular database SDK. So it's really, really easy for people to, for people to use it. Um, but then sort of getting back to like the actual value and why you'd need a decentralized database, I would say, at least for the time being, we are pretty heavily targeting web three companies, um, just because, uh, you know, like a web two company that's using a MySQL or, you know, like an Oracle database. Um, yeah, just, they, uh, I don't think they would find as much value in a decentralized database. And so we're really trying to prioritize what we do well. Um, and then at the same time, you know, maybe, um, but yeah, we're trying to prioritize what we do well and not compete with like existing incumbents because um, that's destructive and not really creating value. And also it doesn't really unleash the potential of Web3, I would say. Yeah, I guess it's probably easier to communicate the value prop to companies that are already operating in the space. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's some companies we talk to and they're like, 
well, how do I store private data? And I'm like, oh, you should not use this for, for private data. And they think it's like a little crazy that, you know, they would want their data to be fully public. So yeah, it, it, it lends itself to a certain type of project. It's not great for every use case, but that's okay. We are just focusing on the use cases. It is good for. Yeah. And going back to the start a bit. So that, that whole, that whole transition from Ecclesia to what is now QuillDB, I guess sort of as, as the founder, I guess you could sort of be thought of as like a captain steering the ship, right? So there's a lot of decisions that get made from that start point to where you are now. What are sort of some of the, the big decisions that you reckon sort of steered the course there? Um, pardon the frequent sailing references. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, let me think about that, actually. I mean, the pivot is certainly the biggest one. Yeah, I, I would say probably the pivot and then our team's like physical move. Um, our team is like, you know, totally in person. I would say those have probably been the two biggest. So sort of starting with the pivot. Um, so what had happened, so we had a beta for our social and really the niche we had found ourselves in or like uh, really trying to tackle for our initial user base was like DAO communication, DAO tooling, almost like Discord for DAOs. Um, and we, there was like a, we're in a closed beta. We're like, um, we were honestly probably like three weeks away from having like an open publicly available version, but there were five different DAOs that we were working with in this closed beta. Um, and there was one that we were really trying to get. They were not super interested in, you know, using it, you know, they, they'd played around with it and they're like, yeah, we're just not sure if it's a great solution, but they were really curious in how we stored the data for our social application because they were building a, uh, well, they wanted it to be decentralized, but they were building an NFT art gallery. And so I, you know, I was on a meeting with them. I sort of like thought, I was like, well, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I still want them to use our product. I still want to be, you know, driving value to Quill. And so I was like, well, you know, we have this sort of like database built on top of Arweave. Would you be interested in using that for your NFT platform? And so that was the first time that Quill DB became like its own concept. Um, and it was only about a month after that, that we fully took the pivot just because, um, you know, we, so it was really interesting. We were like clawing pretty hard for users for like this, uh, for like the DAO communication platform. And it was tough, you know, user-facing social, it's very, very red ocean. There's a lot of competitors. And so when people are coming and looking for a solution for their DAO communications, there's so many different, you know, things they can choose from. But now that we had the standalone database product, we started having, you know, projects coming to us and finding us, we don't even know how they heard of us, asking to use this. And so for us, it was like a, it was a little scary, you know, making the jump and like, you know, pivoting from what we had been doing. Uh, but at the same time, we knew that it was the right decision because for the social, we were clawing for users. But when we, you know, transitioned to the database, users were clawing to get to us. And so that was when we knew that it was probably the right decision to make that switch. Um, and then with that, that sort of changed the technical needs of our product, because now instead of building a, you know, like a great looking social application, our goal is to really build a super extensible decentralized database. And so that sort of brings us to uh, like the second biggest turning point, which is our team's move. So at the time um, when we were doing social, our team was based in Los Angeles. Um, there's, there's like a, I think it's like a three or four square mile area where five of the biggest consumer social apps in the past, uh, I think it's like decade, um, have all emerged out of in Los Angeles. You know, Los Angeles, it's a great place to be for um, social applications, but for deep database and like, um, you know, like distributed systems, um, SQL databases, uh, we knew that we were probably either gonna have to be in San Francisco or in Austin. So companies like Oracle, um, like Oracle, they just moved their headquarters to Austin. And so um, there, there's a lot of like uh, distributed systems and database talent in Austin, Texas. And so uh, just from like a hiring perspective, we knew we were going to have more luck in Austin. And so we made the move actually very recently. We just moved into our new office last week. So um, it was like very, very recent that we made that move. 
How are you, how are you liking Texas life so far? It's hot. It's very hot. Um, it's about 110 outside right now and humid, uh, but it's cool. Uh, yeah, it, it's really cool so far. I'm, we're, we're all very, very happy to be here. So as you mentioned, there's obviously a lot of like distributed systems talent there, um, which is probably also a sign of a lot of other competition for that talent. How do you go about sort of communicating Quill as the, the best of those employers? How do, you, how do you go about recruiting and team building in, in that kind of environment? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting you asked that because um, we, we just hired um, a new team member and we're, you know, we did interviews. I literally had an interview an hour ago with potential candidates. So we're doing a lot of hiring right now. And I think um, th there's sort of like two different responses we've gotten from people. One of them is, oh, this is not the time to work for a startup because, you know, we're sort of going into a recession. They want like sort of like a safer, more stable job. Um, and so that has sort of been an issue for us where people, you know, they don't want to make the jump to a less assured job. But then a lot of people we've talked to, when we explain to them Quill and what we're doing, they're like, their eyes just light up and they're like, this is so interesting. And like, you know, they, um, they're like, you know, we haven't heard of anything really like this in Web3 yet. Um, and so those are sort of like the two responses we get. And unfortunately, it's probably like a 70, 30 split. 70 are probably like, yeah, I just don't want to really take a big risk right now. And then 30 are like, wow, this is really cool. And so when we do find sort of like that 30%, you know, those candidates that we talk to and they just, um, like they see what we're doing, they see just how interesting it is. It's actually been fairly easy to, uh, not, not easy. Um, it's been seamless, somewhat seamless to encourage them to, uh, like potentially jump ship. Um, and come and join us. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think the product, I don't want to say like, it doesn't like sell itself or anything, but when we're talking to like, uh, you know, database engineers or microservice engineers, they do find it really interesting. And that has been really, really helpful for recruiting. Do you, do you find that most of the people that you interview or the people that you hire are engineers who have already had an interest in web three, or do you often find yourself having to sort of sell the, the web three um, vision as well. So I, there haven't really been too many that we have to sell on web three. Um, you know, some of them, they do come with sort of like varying levels of experience with web three. Um, but in general, if they've made it to the point where like, you know, they applied for this job, they have like some level of interest. And so we haven't had to do too much selling on it. Now, you know, one of our recent hires, um, he was, uh, He's our, he's our new CTO and he was previously a VP of development at Oracle. And so he has like a pretty extensive database network. Um, and so, you know, he's been sort of plugging into that. And I know it has been a somewhat tough sell for him um, in like some instances where people, you know, they're, they're a bit skeptical on Web3 in general. But for most of the candidates we're talking to, they are pretty interested in Web3. Um, some of them, some of them have like really deep experience and have worked on protocols and, you know, worked for different projects before. Others, they're vaguely familiar with Web3. They might have written like one test Solidity smart contract, but, you know, they're ready to jump in. Um, and so it's, it's sort of all across the board, but in general, the applicants we get are pretty sold on web three being an important technology. On, on sort of that sales topic away, away from sell, selling yourself to prospective employees, like you, you often hear sort of web threes and attention economy among projects. How have you gone about sort of selling Quill, uh, to clients? Um, I know, I know that your solution is quite unique, but has there been a bit of a challenge there? Yeah, um, th there have been some challenges. It sort of depends on, you know, what exactly we are selling, you know, are we selling, you know, the vision to investors? Are we, you know, selling this product to potential users? And so, um, I mean, I, I think for us, you know, Web3, it's very, uh, like, like 
almost every project is very consumer facing. Like, you know, the graph is like, you know, somewhat similar to Quill. Um, quite a few different use cases, but like in that the graph, it's sort of like, like you would build a protocol using the graph or you would build a, a Web3 solution using the graph. Um, but the graph has a very, very strong consumer facing presence. <laughs> and so I think, you know, the, the, this is something that we're like actively discussing, um, you know, uh, in just every day in Quill, um, but sort of like the brand and the target audience we want to have, we've sort of uh, settled on that we are really trying to appeal to developers. And it's not that, you know, we are, you know, against, you know, uh, like appealing to like more of a consumer facing audience, but it's just for us, our main goal is to be, you know, driving value to Quill and, you know, to be building awesome things with Quill. And so we've really been trying to get, you know, more curate our brand to that, uh, you know, developer audience. And inevitably there are, you know, some um, like, uh, like less technical people that do find their way into the community. And we're very, very grateful for that. But for our general tone of who we're really trying to sell Quill to, it's two developers who already have, you know, like, um, you know, one experience in Web3, but two probably experience working with databases. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially if you, you are developing something that resembles developer tools. Um, sort of what are the, from what you can divulge, what are the priorities for Quill going forward from sort of, I guess, tomorrow onwards? Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I should probably ask for like a little bit of clarification. Do you mean priorities like, you know, in the next three months, six months, year, or do you mean in the next like five years, 10 years? Um, I think start, we'll start short term and then I think we'll, we'll get into the big vision. Yeah. Okay. So I guess like, uh, in the short term. So right now we're really trying to get our next version of the protocol out. Like it's, um, well, hiring people and then getting our next version of the protocol out. Like if we're not interviewing people, you know, we're just heads down building it. Um, and that's because we're implementing a lot of new features here. Um, you know, in our old version of the protocol, it didn't have all like the permissionless write um, ability that, uh, that, you know, we would like to build in to Quill. And so we're sort of like building in a lot more of that functionality in this next version. Um, and so in the next, you know, three months, we're really trying to get um, like a, well, in the next month, actually, we're trying to get a, a beta for some of our like current users of version one um, so that they can begin, you know, testing with it and seeing how it'll integrate with their products. And then in the next three to four months, we're looking for a production ready version. Um, and so these are sort of like, you know, just the, the number one and two on our, on our, like our roadmap and priority list. Um, and then going a bit further to like, you know, sort of like the year long timeline. Um, this is actually a discussion we were just having last night. Um, so we are building out, so we call Quill a SQL database. Um, but you know, there's a lot of different types of databases. There's SQL databases, there's no SQL, there's graph databases, there's document databases. Um, and so core to Quill, and I'm happy to jump into the technicals if you'd like, but it's not directly dependent on it being SQL. Like it, it would be like fairly easy to make Quill into a graph database or into, um, you know, something that's similar to, you know, MongoDB. And so we've seen a lot of projects that are looking for specifically a graph database. And so I think on the longer time horizon, um, building in functionality for Quill so that um, we can support, I think the you know, after SQL, the first thing we will try to support is a graph database, um, as well as like a basic key value store. And so in sort of like the next year, those are our priorities. And then in, in, into the, the juicy stuff, sort of, I don't mean to say end game, um, obviously storing on Arweave as a permanent network probably shouldn't be an end game, but what, what does sort of, what's the vision if sort of Quill wins and, and becomes the dominant solution for SQL? 
Yeah. Um, well, okay. So actually the one clarification I say there, our goal is not to be the dominant solution for SQL. Our goal is to be the dominant solution for building data intensive Web3 protocols. Um, and so the long-term, you know, like 10 year vision is that Quill will be what enables a lot of the um, like expansion of Web3. And but what, you know, to give some context for what I mean by that, um, previously, um, you know, if you went back probably like, you know, six months, anything prior to that, Web3 was almost entirely synonymous with DeFi. Um, but now we're starting to see Web3 go into, you know, decentralized science, decentralized social, decentralized gaming, decentralized analytics. There's all these new sectors of Web3 that are now popping up beyond just financial applications. Um, but, you know, when you're looking at, uh, you know, solutions like Ethereum, they're not great for building one highly complex, but two highly data intensive applications. And so our goal is to really act as that layer that can enable those super complex, super data intensive applications in Web3, you know, social science, gaming, et cetera. And so in the, in the longer term, it's really trying to enable, um, enable new types of products to be created in these markets and to expand what Web3 is beyond just DeFi. Yeah, and I guess in in your position, you, you're in, you're in quite an advantageous position where you get to see, I guess, a wide spectrum of the Web three ecosystem. Are there any sort of, I guess, underappreciated verticals that you're fascinated by or looking at in particular, like a decentralized social or a decentralized science, like sort of like one of those like silos that people might put things in? Let's see. I think there have been some really interesting, um, like decentralized, I, I, don't, I don't know if this would like count as a silo, but like decentralized applications that are focused at being a piece of enterprise architecture. Um, so I, I talked about them earlier, uh, space and time. They, uh, you know, it's a data warehouse, um, but you can essentially get data from, you know, a number of Web3 ecosystems, you know, both on and off chain data and pull it into one data warehouse, access it with one unified API. That's very, very valuable for existing businesses right now. And so, you know, that's something that really like uh, not many people are talking about. And honestly, it's because it's like not as sexy as something, you know, like DeFi. Um, but that is one of like uh, decentralized analytics. There's no one called Trueflation that, um, you know, they're doing uh, like a lot of inflation data for different, you know, uh, commodities and giving like a CPI numbers. And so um, decentralized analytics, I think, is one that um, is generally, you know, talked about less or at least has been talked about less. Um, and then, you know, I don't hear too many people talk about decentralized science. I've started hearing people talk about it, um, but it still is very much in its infancy. Now, the projects that have, you know, begun, um, you know, popping up in decentralized science are also still very much in their infancy. Um, but it's another area where I think, you know, when you look at Web3 and the openness, the composability and, you know, the lack of, you know, middlemen and barriers that Web3 offers, that's very much in line with the, you know, the ethos of, you know, scientific research, which is, you know, research and progress for the common good. But at the same time, we see very commonly in scientific communities, you know, things behind paywalls, or you have to pay to get things into journals, and then people have to pay to read those from the journals. We see a lot of middlemen and a lot of gatekeeping. And so Web3, I think with decentralized science, there's a real opportunity to align incentives there and to really create some pretty uh, fantastic outcomes. And so I would say decentralized analytics, decentralized science. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer. I think there's a lot to think about there. Um, do you have any any sort of overarching one key piece of advice for someone who's looking to build a protocol? Obviously, someone someone like yourself, you've sort of seen it all, done all the pivots. Um, what's sort of the one thing you'd say to someone who's going out trying to who's found a problem is looking to launch a solution? 
Oh man, I don't know if I'm in the position to be giving advice. Um, you know, it's still pretty early days here at Quill. Um, let's see. Um, I don't know. I, I think I would say like, uh, hmm, try to find the best way to word this. Um, you know, make sure you know who you're building for. You know, I think uh, we there was a sort of point in time with the social where we, we had a couple different markets we wanted to target, but we weren't really sure what, you know, we were targeting and, you know, we had built like a, you know, a pretty decent social application, put like a lot of, a lot of hard work into it and worked, you know, pretty dang well. And we weren't really sure who our, you know, target market was like who, who is actually, who's going to use this. And that's, that's really like a broader question in Web3, you know, Web3 gets criticized um, for sort of like a lack of, you know, lack of real use cases. And so I think, you know, for us, what's made, What's made me like personally very bullish on Quill, especially like, you know, Quill DB is that we can like identify people that we are building for that are actively, you know, ready to use this product that want to use this because they, there is no other solution for what they're trying to do. And so, yeah, I think for us, what has helped us, um, I mean, with everything, fundraising, recruiting, you know, knowing what to build is knowing who we're doing it for. Um, and that's the customer. Um, and so I would say that has probably been the, the most important thing I've learned so far. I think that's, that's a really good lesson. Probably makes it easier to find your customers as well once you know who they are. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. But before I let you go, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. And I've, I've definitely learned a lot and hopefully the listeners have as well. I'll give you your choice on the last question. It's either one, do you have a favorite piece of trivia that you'd like to share? Or two, do you have an unpopular book or movie recommendation that you actually really enjoy? Uh, you're putting me on the spot with this one. Let's see. I don't know. Do you have an answer for one of those? Maybe give me some inspiration here and then I can try to think of something. I guess sort of my favorite piece of trivia is sort of the founding story of Pad Thai. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if this is just an absolute folktale or not, but this, the story was that they were overly dependent on Chinese rice noodles or wheat noodles. And they, oh no, they were overly dependent on Chinese wheat imports. Um, so they wanted to create a, a national Thai dish um, using their like advantage in rice. I, I might've had this completely wrong way around, but anyway, the King commissioned like a national competition, uh, to invent a Thai dish. And so all, all the chefs competed to put it in front of the chef, uh, in front of the King. Uh, and that's how the Pad Thai was invented. Um, and then sort of from there, they launched sort of an international campaign to build all these Thai restaurants, uh, and sell Pad Thai through them. I reckon, I reckon that's my absolute favorite, even though I've absolutely butchered the delivery there. Interesting. Okay. No, no, no. I, okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Hydraulic excavators. Um, so, and, and this is like a piece of trivia that I'm like a big fan of because I think it's very applicable to web three. Um, so hydraulic excavators, I believe they like sort of be, so there was, you know, mechanical excavators, um, and then hydraulic and, uh, mechanical excavators, they, you know, they were, they were very widely used. Um, and then hydraulic excavators started coming up in the 1920s. Um, but everyone's like, oh, you know, these things are absolutely useless. You know, they, uh, they, they aren't as, or no, I, I, I believe I'm getting these mixed. There, there were hydraulic excavators, mechanical excavators began becoming popularized. Um, and people liked mechanical excavators because um, they were more reliable, but they couldn't get as much weight. But as they began improving their technology, they ended up fully taking over the market. Um, and then in the 19, like uh, late forties, when we had, you know, uh, like, you know, baby boomers, and then we had the expansion of American suburbia, 
Um, they found that the excavator that was more reliable but could move less weight, i.e. the uh, mechanical excavator, it was very, very valuable in building in these tight neighborhoods where they needed something reliable, where it was really a pain in the ass to get you know, a, crane or a, a crane or an excavator in and out of there. And then um, they needed to build in like these uh, smaller trenches. And we have since now, you know, mechanical excavators, they're the only excavators that are used. Yeah, I, the reason I like this like a uh, piece of trivia is because, um, you know, the excavators, like they're originally called completely useless and like, oh, no one will actually use this. There's no real use case for this. And then there was a use case for it in building suburbia and it ended up taking over um, the excavator market entirely. And now the entire world runs on them. And so, yeah, I would say that is a piece of trivia. Um, I, I might be mixing up my type of excavators here, but... Um, for, so, for someone who's been put on the spot, you've come out with an absolute cracker. Um, <laughs> really impressive. I read this in a book a couple of years ago. Um, oh my God, I keep going back and either mechanical excavators took over hydraulic ones or hydraulic took over excavator. And the reason they took it over was because while they couldn't lift as much weight, they uh, were more reliable and that made them really useful in building American suburbia after World War II. And now, now they can lift as much weight as the other one, and they're the only one that's used ever. So th th that's my piece of trivia. I'm getting it slightly messed up here because I read it a long time ago. No, so super well done and super well linked, linked back to Web3. That, that, that was another one I wasn't expecting. Um, a lot easier to link that back to Web3 than Pad Thai. Um, anyway, <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks so much for coming on, Brennan. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure um, and wish you all the best going forward. Yeah, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Stay in touch. It's been nice. All right. See you soon. All right. Yep, I'll see you, man. Thanks so much for listening to that latest episode of Hands' Protocol Weekly. I deeply hope you enjoyed it. If you want to stay up to date with our podcast every week, follow The Firm or myself on Twitter at Hands underscore network or at AHR Whitford. Even better, uh, if you're a best case scenario where this episode has motivated you to start your own protocol, I'd recommend heading to our website at handsa.network and reaching out to the Accelerator Investments team through our founder forums there. I've been your host, Archie Whitford. Thanks for tuning in and look forward to next time.